Well, good morning. Did y'all sleep well? Did you sleep? Maybe some people pulled all night slumber parties. I don't know. I slept well. My husband snores quite bad, but he brought his CPAP machine. I love that thing. So I slept pretty good, except I had a reoccurring dream that I've had for, well, I won't say how long, because then you'll realize how old I am. Ever since I got out of high school, I have this dream probably five or six times a year where I'm standing at my locker before first hour, Mr. Asaph's U.S. history class, and I can't remember my combination. And I'm spinning it, I'm spinning it, and then my best friend comes up and is like, come on, we got to get to first hour, and I'm spinning it, I can't remember it, I'm so panicky, and then I wake up. But the funny thing is, I still remember my high school locker combination. <laughs> so I don't know why in my dream I can't remember it. But I hope everyone's well-rested and looking forward to a great day today. I know I am. Well, five-year-old Ryan was our next-door neighbor. He was a blonde-haired, brown-eyed little spitfire whose favorite pastime was to ride his bike, his old red Schwinn girl's bike that had been handed down through several cousins before making its way into Ryan's garage and into his heart. And he loved that thing. It was his most treasured possession. He would proudly parade it up and down the sidewalk in front of our home with his little squeaky um, gears on it. I could hear him come and squeak, squeak, squeak. Here comes Ryan. He loved that bike. It was his favorite thing in the world to do. So imagine my surprise when one day I happened upon Ryan in the yard, very close together yard, between his house and ours, there were only 16 feet between our houses, and he was out there with his bike. It was laying on the ground, and he was kicking it with the toe of his tennis shoe, as hard as he could, and saying, stupid bike, dumb, stupid bike, and he was just kicking it. And I thought, well, what, did it break? What's going on? This is so strange. He loves this bike. And so I said, hey, right guy, what's going on? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Mrs. Eamon, cool kids have a bright blue mud puppy dirt bike, not some dumb old hand-me-down bike from their girl cousins. Stupid bike! And he kicked it again as hard as he could. And it completely puzzled me until it dawned on me what day it was. It was the first day of kindergarten. And sure enough, as I did a little investigating, I realized that at recess, all the kids had gathered around on the playground and discussed what kind of bikes they owned. And so in Ryan's eyes, his prized possession suddenly turned stupid. Why? Why? Comparisons. Comparisons deal a death blow to our contentment. Is that not totally true? I mean, there is nothing wrong with my house. My comforters, my pillows, my furniture, completely satisfactory. Until I wander into the pottery barn. <laughs> nothing wrong with the front of my house. I think I've got a cute little brick ranch house. It's, it's cute, it's adorable. Until one of my favorite DIY uh, home decorating bloggers on Instagram posts this post. Does your house have curb appeal? And I realized mine doesn't really so much. And my car. I mean, okay, there's nothing wrong with the cars that we own. We have a 2005 baby blue Buick LeSabre with 155,000 miles on it. Nothing wrong with that car. Okay. Nothing wrong with that car. It gets you from point A to point B most days. 
unless it's broken. It's in the shop right now. But, you know, if I have to drive that car, it'll get me from point A to point B. Nothing wrong with my car. Until I carpooled with my friend Leanne. She has a brand new Cadillac with those sweet cup holders, which is the really, you know, the only thing I care about on a car. When we go to get a new car, I'm like, how are the cup holders? Is it going to take my high-maintenance coffee drink when I turn a corner, right? My husband actually makes Cadillacs for a living. He can make them, but we just can't afford one. But my friend Leanne has one. And now suddenly I don't like my car so much. You see, we're usually all content with our red Schwinn hand-me-down bike until we spy someone riding by on their brand new bright blue mud puppy. It's so true in many areas of our life. I told you my daughter owns her own salon. She tells me, you know, how many women don't like their looks, their hair. They'll come in, the ones that have brunette hair, they want her to turn them blonde. They want it highlighted blonde. The blondes, they want to go redhead, right? And then the women with beautifully textured hair, you know, kind of curly and, and kinky, and it's just beautiful. I think it's beautiful. They come in, what do they want? Keratin treatment, so they can get straightened. And then the women that have straight hair, they come in, and what do they want? Permanent, right? Which should really not be called a permanent. It should be called a temporary, right? <laughs> when you think about it, we do it with our looks. We also do it with our income. Some of us look at people that have a really nice new house, a nice new car, a cottage up north, a boat, a motorcycle, whatever, really fancy clothes, and we think, gee, must be nice to own all that stuff. But then maybe a person that owns all that stuff is sitting there thinking, I don't really own it, the bank owns it. The credit card companies own it. And they look at someone else, and they're envious that that person, their only debt is their mortgage. They're not up to debt and working a bunch of overtime to pay for all the things that the bank and the credit card companies own. Oh, I know another place we do it. We do it with our personalities. There are some of you out there who are kind of quiet and shy and reserved and wouldn't scream if you were on fire. <laughs> and you think, oh, I'm so introverted. I wish I were more like her. I wish I were more outgoing and extroverted and liked to talk. But trust me, ladies, some of us who are extroverted and like to talk, we wish we were like you. So we wouldn't put our feet in our mouths so often, right? You're tracking with me. And I find a lot of times, too, we do this with our lot in life, especially with marital status. I have a few friends who are single who want nothing more in life than to be married. But trust me, ladies. No offense, sweetheart. But those of us who are married, sometimes we think, take it. <laughs> right? Then I could find the ketchup and the stapler and everything would be where I put it and we wouldn't be late to anything, right? <sighs> sometimes we look at each other and think, I wish I were single, I wish I were married. I actually went through a time of thinking about this a lot when we lived next door to our neighbor, our wonderful, awesome neighbor, Jennifer. She's still my favorite neighbor we ever had. We had two little ranch houses that sat side by side, and they were mirror images of each other. So I had a kitchen that was on the corner that faced her house, had a little corner window where my kitchen sink was, and her house was over here, and she had a little corner window that faced where my kitchen was. It was actually quite handy. If I needed to borrow something, I could just open the window and say, hey, Jennifer, do you have a can of tomatoes? I'm making chili. 
But you know, if I'm honest, at that time in our marriage, this was about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, sometimes I would stand at my kitchen sink doing my dishes, looking out my window at her and her house and thinking, I wish I were her. I wish I were her. She was a single mom. She had a job that she trained for and loved and got dressed up for and wore nail polish to every day. And I was a stay-at-home mom of three kids. Could never paint my nails. Somebody always messed it up or a diaper needed changing or somebody's nose needed to be wiped. I didn't get to go to a job I loved all day. Her job meant she had an entire lunch hour. You know, I barely had five minutes to eat the crust off the leftover peanut butter sandwiches of my three kids. Oh, I'm hearing an amen over there on that one. And I would look at her, and even though I knew it was very sad to her that she had suddenly become a single mom, it still meant that every other weekend, when her child was with his father, she got an entire weekend off. <laughs> and I would sit there and think, oh, I wish I were her. Hey, only one kid, no sibling rivalry over at that house. And my kids were fighting all the time. And I would do my dishes and I would think, man, I wish I were her. Until one day, Jennifer and I sat out on my back deck having lemonade. And guess what she told me? That she often stood at her kitchen sink doing dishes, looking at my house and thinking, I wish I were her. Because she has a husband who did not leave her for another woman. And she gets to be home with her children, watching them grow up, which Jennifer couldn't reduce her hours, go part-time, take off a season. She had work full-time now that she was a single mom. And she said, "And you know what? She has three really great kids. And I only have one. But her kids, they're so great. Because you see, they would mind for her. It was just me they were naughty for. <laughs> and she would sit there doing her dishes, thinking, I wish I were her. We actually got a good laugh about it and thought, we should write a country song. <laughs> and then I heard one on the radio. It was called, If I Could Live Her Life, about two women who each wished they were the other person. There's actually a term for this. Psychologists call it yardsticking. Yardsticking, that we look at someone else's life, and that becomes the yardstick. And we don't try to measure up based on like what our dreams and goals are and where we'd hoped we'd be in life. We look at somebody else with their money, and their looks, and their house, and their marital status, and we measure our lives to theirs, and we come up short. We look at someone and think, wow, it seems like they have such a great marriage, when mine, you know, I don't know if it's going to make it till next Tuesday. Or it seems like they have such well-behaved children, seems like they have such a fulfilling job, it seems, it seems, it seems like everyone else has it better than us, it seems we're coming apart at the seams, not S-E-A-M-S. S-E-E-M-S. And when we compare ourselves to others, we lose our content contentment. And you know what happens? We often kick into control. We try to change things. Well, we're going to take a little trip back again to the Old Testament to look at two sisters, Rachel and Leah, who had a little problem playing this comparison game. So you can flip or tap your way if you have an electronic device to Genesis 29, Genesis 29. 
The scene is a watering hole for sheep, and Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is going to the land of his ancestors to look for a wife. So I'm going to kind of hop around. Sometimes I'm going to read. Sometimes I'm going to condense. But we're going to start in chapter 29, verse 9. It says this. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Wow, they kissed on the first date. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinman, kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Then hop over to verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. How romantic. So we'll pick up the story here. I'll just kind of condense. So what happens is there's a wedding, a wedding feast, a wedding night. Jacob wakes up in the morning, and uh uh-oh, it's not Rachel. He actually married Leah. Now, have you ever wondered about this story? Like, what was going on in the Holy Land holiday inns back there? You know, back then that they couldn't see who it was, right? But he wakes up, and it's not Rachel, who he loved. It's Leah. So his new father-in-law says, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you this one little detail. In our culture, we have to marry off the older daughter first. So there's your wife, Leah. Now, if you want, Rachel, you can work another seven years. So Jacob agrees. Rachel becomes his wife, his second wife then, but he has to work another seven years for her. Now we're going to pick up the story in chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that means that by comparison, not really that Jacob hated her, but in comparison, he preferred Rachel. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son. And she said, now this time my husband will be attracted to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. About time, the woman needed a break. When Rachel saw that she had borne Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, 
Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So when Rachel saw Leah pop out four sons for Jacob, she said, Oh, I have a great idea. Hey, I remember what Sarah did once. I'll give my maidservant to him so that maybe then I can have children through my maidservant. So her servant had two sons. Well, Rachel, I mean Leah, who it said had stopped having children at this point, she thought, well, two can play at this game. So she gave her servant to Jacob, and he and the servant conceived two more sons. That guy must have been so tired back then, my goodness. <laughs> then more, Leah, being the fertile myrtle she was, she bore herself two more sons and a daughter. So in the great Old Testament baby-making contest, here's how the score stood. Leah had eight sons, six of her own, two by her servant, and a daughter. Rachel had two sons by her maidservant. And then, if we flip over to chapter 30, verse 22, <clears throat> we see that finally, what Rachel wanted more than anything happened. Verse 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel... And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son, which he does. Flip over to chapter 35, verse 16. And they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when she, her labor was at his hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. You know, in this crazy baby-making race, Rachel and Leah each looked at the other one and thought, wow, must be nice. Must be nice to be her. Leah wanted nothing more than to be pretty and loved. But all she could do was, you know, pop out babies. She was such a fertile myrtle. Rachel wanted nothing more than to have a baby. But she was already pretty and loved. They each wanted what the other one had, and so they kicked into control. And, you know, we still do this today. Maybe not with our flesh and blood sisters, but we get jealous of others, the Joneses, right? We try to keep up with the Joneses. Have you ever thought about this? In years past, our mothers and our grandmothers only saw the Joneses a couple of times a week. Maybe you saw them on Sunday when they drove up in their nice new car and you were still driving your old contraption. Or maybe you saw them at the PTA meeting on Wednesday night when Mrs. Jones had fancier clothes than you. But today, the Joneses parade in front of our eyes 24-7, where? Social media, on our phones, right? And so you look at Instagram and you see that a friend just posted that she and her family are going on a Hawaiian vacation. And you're pretty sure she can still fit into her bathing suit from high school. <laughs> hey, I can still fit into all my scarves and earrings from high school. But you look at her and you think, wow, that must be nice. You know, we were hoping to just kind of 
search the couch cushions for some change and as a family go down and get a double dip at the ice cream store, but they're going to Hawaii. Or how about this one? Has this ever happened to you? Your friend posts on Facebook that their student, their, their son, just got middle school student of the month at Roosevelt Middle School. And you think, well, good for her. I mean, that's great. She should post about that. She should be proud. But you're looking at that on Facebook on your phone, and all of a sudden, your phone rings. And it's your local middle school informing you that your son sits busted in the vice principal's office for a prank involving firecrackers and a substitute teacher that he and his friends thought was completely hilarious, but which the substitute teacher and vice principal saw no humor in. Not that that's ever happened to anybody I know. I told you, youngest, gray hair. And so often, when we compare and we come up short, we wonder why, like, why do, why do I so come up short? You know why? It's because you are comparing your behind-the-scenes reality, what's really happening within your four walls, within your relationships, your reality, you're comparing your reality with a perception of someone else. They're not putting out all the bad stuff on social media. I didn't tweet about the day, Spencer. You know, got called to the vice principal's office. Now, when his football team won state championships, oh, yeah, I was tweeting about that. We come up short, and we spend so much time looking at others and thinking, oh, I want to be like her. I want to be like her. We spend so much time wanting to be like her, it leaves us very little time trying to be like him. Well, I'm here to admit to you that I have had a decades-long struggle with letting comparisons kill my contentment. Now, I hate to admit it, but for most of my life, I have been a very envious person. Now, to others, I looked happy-go-lucky, outgoing, content with my lot in life, but often secretly, I wanted to be somebody else. When my fairy tale marriage wasn't so happily ever after, after all, the first about, what, two years of marriage? I wanted a different husband, anybody other than the man I married. Thought it would get better with kids, but when the kids came along, it only got worse because I don't know if you did this, but I had the exact blueprint for how my family was going to pan out with kids. First of all, I wanted six kids. I really did. I wanted six kids. Due to a medical condition I have, I was only able to have three. And it soon became apparent to me that the three I did wind up with they were not following the blueprint. <laughs> because I had this exact plan in my mind for what their personalities were going to be like, right? And so my oldest, my daughter, was supposed to be a violin-playing, Laura Ingalls-like domestic princess, <laughs> which she actually was. She used to call herself half-pint. She actually was like that until she became about eight years old. And all of a sudden, she developed a love for contemporary hairstyles. She wanted to get her hair cut short and bell-bottom jeans, which weren't really in back then, but she thought they were stylish. And she developed a quick, often sharp tongue. Don't know where she got that from. But all of a sudden, she didn't fit the mold in my circle of friends anymore at our homeschool co-op. And I set out to try to change her personality. Then, our second child, 
When he got into about the third grade, he was still struggling with reading even the simplest of words. It was very frustrating for me. I was a homeschool mom. So we had him tested and we discovered that he's severely dyslexic, which was a terrifying term to me as a homeschool mom, and it meant lots of money spent on therapy for him and lots of extra time spent helping him with his homework for his little homeschool academy he went to, time I could have had to myself, like a lot of my friends did, thank you very much, and I wasn't content with his academic pro progress, and so I set out to fix him. Then the baby of our family arrived, and out of my body that day shot a nine-pound, 14-ounce, in-your-face, stubborn, spitfire son who would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a state trooper at the age of four, would go toe-to-toe -to -toe in an argument with me at the age of six, and I would call my husband and say, I'm arguing with a six-year-old and he's winning. <laughs> that was not in the blueprint. I wanted a mild-mannered, laid-back sort of child like my friend Jill. She has 10 of them. I kid you not, ladies, I have a friend who has 10 laid-back, agreeable children. They sat so quietly in the church pew saying, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And mine are climbing all over the place. And I thought, I only asked for one God. How hard could that be? <laughs> now, slowly to others, my life looked pretty good. I became a speaker and a published author, but even reaching my writing and speaking dreams, it came with pain because I felt so compared to the other speakers at the conferences. I mean, they'd introduce the first speaker, it's Beth Moore, and now there's Karen Eman. You know, oh, it's Candace Cameron Bure, and now here's Karen Eman. And I wrongly surmised that their families must be perfect, that everything was all together, and mine was not, and I just couldn't compete in the area of looks. I mean, they had tan skin and white teeth, I had white skin and tan teeth. <laughs> and one time, I was sitting in the break room where all the speakers and the volunteers work, and I heard someone at the table behind me say, hey, is that Midwest gal that has a Midwest accent, is she back here again this year? She was great. Should be a compliment, right? And the person next to her said, oh, you mean that funny, fat one? About that time, my mom brought over a box of things that had been mine in the sixth grade. She saved everything. It took us a long time to clean out her house in April when she passed away. But she had my diary. And I discovered as I turned the pages on that book that my problem wasn't new. Even as a preteen and teenager growing up in a broken, empty, sometimes violent home, I'd wanted to be someone else. January 10th, today I went to Heidi Johnson's house after school and we had tacos for dinner. Heidi is so cute and quiet, I want to be more like her. January 17th, Trisha Clark said, bye Karen, as I was getting off the bus today. She is the most popular eighth grader in the whole school. I wish I was her. January 23rd, I went to Judy Olivier's slumber party tonight, and for supper, her parents took us to McDonald's. It was pretty fun. But I decided something when I was sitting there. From now on, I'm going to be a lot more like Judy Olivier. And Kay Forrest, 
Kelly Dilly, Kate Gensterbloom, and Susan Satterfield, and a lot of other girls I know. Yes, that is what I will do. I will be like them. Even in the sixth grade, I wanted to be someone else. In a letter to the church meeting in Philippi, the Apostle Paul penned these words in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, don't take that last verse out of context like a lot of people do. It doesn't mean you can go, you know, still do a round-off back handspring because God's going to... It means I can do all these things or both of these things, live in plenty or in want. I can do them both because Christ gives me strength. And just think of Paul. You know, he was writing from a dark, lonely first-century prison. They didn't have internet access or an air-conditioned exercise room like prisons have today. There was no spiritual Spotify for him to download his latest songs on and listen. But it still says he learned the secret of contentment. And has that word ever jumped out at you, learned? He didn't apply the secret of contentment. He had to learn it. He had to learn it the hard way. Now, the Greek word rendered content is pronounced otarkes. Otarkes. It's spelled A-U- T-A-R-C-E-S. And it means more than just a reluctant acceptance, like, okay, whatever, whatever. It actually means this. I just love this. I'm going to say it slow because people always like to write this down. The word content means to be satisfied to the point where I am no longer disturbed or disquieted. To be satisfied to the point where I am no longer disturbed or disquieted. You see, that's the place God already has for us. He's just waiting for us to take our eyes off our situation and place them on him. Because you see, we get it backwards. We like stare at our circumstances. We stare at them and we fret and we worry. And we every once in a while glance up to God and go, can I get a little help here? That's backwards. Don't stare at your circumstances and occasionally glance up to God. Fix your gaze upon God. Of course, you need to glance at your circumstances to assess the situation so you can pray, but fix your gaze upon God. And when you do that, you will live out loud the truth of one of my favorite statements by author Elizabeth Elliot. She says this, the difference is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The difference is Christ in me. Not me in a different set of circumstances. But don't our human minds reason that the opposite is true? You know those reels that play through your mind. Please tell me I'm not the only one that has them. Like if only I had her good looks, or her money, or her brains, or her job, or her husband, or her house. We're tempted to buy the lie that the grass is greener on the other side. Well, guess what? Todd's brother has been a turf grass specialist for the United States government for 30-some years. And guess what he told me when I said, hey, Doug, where's the grass greener? He said this, where you constantly fertilize it, habitually hydrate it, and where you are intentional to pull the weeds the moment they pop up. That's where the grass is the greenest. We need to tend to our own grass and quit 
wanting someone else's. Well, in the future, when we're tempted to compare, we want to weasel out of life circumstances, let's quit trying to change the circumstances and change our attitude. Instead, that's the only thing we can change. We can't change people, can't change circumstances, but we can change our attitude. And I think it's helpful to ask ourselves a few questions, like, what does God want me to learn about him that I would never learn if he suddenly plucked me out of this circumstance? Or what Christ-like characteristic is he trying to grow in me? Maybe patience or compassion or faith. Quit asking why. Why am I here? Why is this happening? Start asking what. What do you want me to learn? Only then will we discover the secret that Paul knew. He said he learned the secret of contentment. What was it? I think it was this. That true contentment, it isn't having what you want. It's wanting nothing more than what you already have. So let me ask you, what do you already have? I'm going to have them throw up a picture of what I already have, my family here. So there's my family, my college sweetheart turned husband, and then our oldest daughter, she's there kind of in the front hugging her baby brother. She's uh, slightly spunky. The second born is the son standing next to Todd. He's somewhat sneaky. There's his lovely wife, Macy, from Georgia that he met through my Instagram account. And then there's the baby of the family, Spencer, who causes me a lot of gray hair. Because, uh, ladies, you can be praying. He's training to be a UFC fighter. He just had his first uh, boxing match. He lost, but he lived. So, hey, there's that. <laughs> so that's my family. I used to want the perfect family, and now I realize that the family I have is the one that's perfect for me. My daughter has taught me to quit trying to change my kids' personalities, embrace them. The girl, you know, she cut her hair, the bell bottom, she was taking makeup and using it. She is now a top stylist. She's won top stylist four years in a row in Charlotte, North Carolina. Proud of that, but I'm more proud that she does work on the side, that volunteers her time to help women who've been rescued from sex trafficking learn how to do their hair and makeup. And I was so mad at her, she was always, there was never a point on my lipstick. She was playing with it all the time, you know, when she was little. Embrace your kids' personalities and your grandkids' personalities. My second son, my second child, my first son, taught me I need to spend more time with my family, helping them, than running out and helping everybody else. That's what his dyslexia taught me. And my youngest son, he taught me that sometimes I need to knuckle down, because he was the hardest kid to raise, but sometimes I need to lighten up. He gives me some of my best speaking material. <laughs> like the time when Todd suddenly started losing all his hair. We were worried. We thought maybe he had cancer or something. Maybe it was just because he was married to me. I don't know. But he was getting all kinds of tests. And Spencer, he's usually a happy-go-lucky child. He was about seven at the time. But I could tell he was really worried. And I was sit tucking him in bed one night, and I said to him, Spencer, is everything okay, buddy? And he started to cry. This kid never cries. And I said, Spencer, what's going on? And he said, Mama, what if Daddy has cancer and dies? What will we do? And I assured him that so far it didn't look like that, but you know, even if something like that happened, God would still be enough. And he said, okay. And he kind of wiped his tears and blew his nose. He said, okay, Mommy, because I love Daddy so much. I don't want anything to happen. But if Daddy does die, would you ever consider going out with Taylor Hicks? <laughs> That guy that won American Idol, that guy with the gray hair. 
Give me some of my best speaking material. Well, now I'm going to show you a picture of what my family is now in my home. No longer do all these people live. It's just me and my sweet college sweetheart, Todd, the man I married in part because he had such great hair. <laughs> I think he's cute bald. Well, I want you to imagine your situation, your family, whatever it looks like on that screen. Better yet, pull out your cell phone. Go to a picture that represents your life right now, whether it's your family, a picture of your house, a picture of work. If you don't have Wi-Fi, you didn't get lucky enough like Pat to win the Wi-Fi pass, you probably still can get to your camera roll. So go to your camera roll, and I want you to find a picture that represents your life right now. Whatever it looks like. Maybe you have way more kids than I did, there are than I do, maybe you have less. Maybe it's just you and the kids, no husband. Maybe it's just you and a husband, no kids. Maybe it's just you all alone. A solo shot, a selfie. Find a picture and look at it. Will you dare to leave the land of must be nice and instead Embrace the life you have. Embrace your lot in life, however little it may seem. I want you to pinky promise me this weekend that you will stop trying to keep up with the Joneses, because let me let you in on a little secret. The Joneses are overrated. They're overrated. You don't know what's going on behind those smiling pictures on Instagram, okay? Embrace the lot you've been given. True contentment isn't having what you want. It's wanting nothing more than what you already have. So keep your eyes firmly fixed on God, not your circumstances, not your friends, not your coworkers. And as you do, remember this truth that I've had to learn the long, hard way. It's always best to be an original version of yourself than a cheap, sixth grade knockoff of somebody else. Amen. God bless you.